landed an RC airplane. We'll share tips and tricks on how to build models and talk about successful flights, epic crashes, and everything in between. Visit us at rcplanelab.com to sign up for our email list and to ask us questions. You can also text us or leave us a voicemail at 818-351-9846. Please help us out by rating and reviewing us in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for spending time with us today. Now here are your hosts, Ron and Tom. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the RC Plane Lab podcast. I'm Ron. And I'm Tom. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about nitro engines or glow engines. My favorite. Yeah, I know, right? I figured you'll uh, you'll be doing a lot of talking in this one. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm pretty long winded. So, uh, <laughs> buckle up, folks. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. We'll, we'll see what we get out of it, and, and we'll we'll go from there. Okay. So, basics of a nitro engine. You know, it's it's kind of like uh, like a diesel engine. Um, it has a glow plug that ignites the, the fuel air mixture in the cylinder. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike a gas engine, you know, it doesn't have a spark plug. Um, so it's, they're easier to install in, uh, in an airplane than a gas engine. You don't have to have a separate battery to run your ignition all the time. Yeah, that's um, right. gosh, what else? Um, <laughs> Well, that's about it for me. So go on. Let, let me know. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. So, so the majority of our uh, nitro model engines are, you know, two-stroke, uh, but the four-strokes are out there as well. Uh, you know, and the big, uh, the big differences between them is, you know, how they how they accomplish those four functions that all internal combustions have, which is the suck, squeeze, bang, and blow, which is uh, <laughs> I've never yeah. heard it put that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you have to you have to suck, so you have to pull the air fuel mixture into the um, combustion chamber, and then you have to squeeze it. You have to compress it, and mm-hmm. then bang, you have to ignite it somehow, and then blow. You have to get the get the spent exhaust gases out of that chamber. No, so, I like that. That that's pretty good. Heck, my dad may have even taught me that a long time ago. Uh, oh, that's but, funny. Uh, but yeah, so a two-stroke. We'll start there since the since those are by far the majority of the model engines out there. Um, a a two-stroke accomplishes all four of those operations in one complete revolution of the crankshaft, which is two strokes: a downstroke and an upstroke. Um, two-stroke develops power on every downstroke, uh, and it pulls the intake charge in on every upstroke. Uh, and does the compression as well. So it actually, it kind of combines, op- well, it has to combine operations on each stroke since there's only two strokes to accomplish them and there's four operations. So on a two-stroke, uh, usually when the piston is moving down after having detonated the fuel air charge at the top, developing power, uh, on its way down uh, at a certain point, uh, the piston will uncover a transfer port that is cast into the um, crankcase of the engine, and uh, it'll pass over this port and open it up, which will thereby, in this particular case on the downstroke, will open up the intake port, almost kind of like a valve, but we don't have any moving valves in a two-stroke. So once it opens up that port, it opens up the channel. All of these crankshafts, uh, on a front intake anyway, on a rotary uh, intake type two-stroke, uh, opens up that channel between the carburetor and the top of the uh, combustion chamber. Uh, so the crankshaft is hollow, and then it provides a port via that cast-in opening in the crankcase, uh, 
and then it provides a path for that fuel and air to trail travel from the carburetor up to the intake or up to the combustion chamber. Uh, so on its way down, it opens up the port, a uh, little bit of negative pressure inside there as those exhaust gases are rapidly cooling after having been uh, ignited by the glow plug at the top of the stroke. Uh, that negative pressure pulls in that fuel air charge, runs it up through those channels that have now been opened up by the piston and allows that stuff to get to the top of the piston uh, to get it ready for the next phase. So the crankshaft goes through a bottom dead center. Now we're going on our way back up. The piston closes off that port, seals off the combustion chamber, and on its way up, it compresses all of that stuff. And then once it gets close or very, very close to the top of that, the heat of that compression and the glowing element in the glow plug uh, and, the, and the high pressure that's in there is enough to ignite that mixture. And we start the process all over again. The piston heads back down, uh, passes the exhaust port, the gases go out, and then the piston goes and opens up that intake port again, and the whole process is repeated, all in one revolution of the crankshaft. So that's why you can get so much power out of a two-stroke then, because each one of the, the revolutions isn't actually a power stroke. Exactly. And that's why they, uh, generally speaking, they turn more RPM, because they're depending on that, on the velocity and the and the variable pressures, or the, the varying pressures between intake and exhaust to pull that, uh, well, to both pull the fuel air charge into the cylinder, and then again to push the expense stuff out. It has to develop a lot of pressure and momentum, and you do that through RPM. Generally speaking, that's why two strokes turns such a high amount, if you will, or much higher uh, RPM than the, than the similar size four stroke. Because a four stroke doesn't really rely on that velocity so much as as the two stroke does to, to move that air fuel charge. I hope I'm doing a good job of explaining that. It makes sense in my head. <laughs> yes, so far I'm understanding, that's that's good. Okay, so a four-stroke then, um, it does have the valves, and right. those are run off of the camshaft. Um, yep. So how, how does that whole situation work then? What's the, what's the four-stroke as opposed to the two on that one? Yeah, so a four-stroke engine uh, accomplishes all four of those operations, you know, suck, squeeze, bang, blow, uh, in two complete revolutions of the crankshaft. Um, so basically, you know, there's one stroke for each revolution, a downstroke and an upstroke. So if we're doing two revolutions, that's four strokes. So that's where we get the term four stroke or four cycle. Some, you know, you want to call it something else, you can call it a cycle. Um, and that's the same principle that uh, pretty much all, 99.999% uh, of automotive application, automotive internal combustion engines, that's how they operate on the four cycle, four stroke principle. And basically what yeah. we've got is instead of using cast-in transfer ports uh, in the crankcase, we're actually going to control the fuel air charge uh, and, and the other operations by opening and closing valves uh, with, you know, using the camshaft like you mentioned. So the four-stroke is a lot more difficult to maintain. Um, it is. I, I shouldn't say a lot more difficult, but there's more to it. There's more moving right. parts. Right. Um, yeah, it's not, it's not difficult. It's just more more to think about and more to maintain. Yeah, like a four-stroke engine is more in-depth, I guess, when it comes to owning it, um, right. you know, based on what you have to do with it and, and how you keep it in adjustment. Right, right. Uh, and it's and it's really important because 
Uh, whereas on a two-stroke, there's really not, you know, once once you, uh, you know, set it and forget it, right? Once you get everything working correctly on a two-stroke, uh, which is basically just adjusting the carburetor, which we'll talk about later, um, you know, you don't, you don't really have to adjust anything. Uh, over time, with a four-stroke, as with, uh, you know, as with early car engines, uh, they, they did require frequent adjustment in our modern, even our modern airplane two, uh, four strokes that we're using uh, require maintenance. You know, we have to adjust the valves occasionally to adjust for wear and, um, you know, clean bearings and, and things like that. Uh, make sure the valves are not carboned up so they're getting a good seal on the on the valve seats and things like that. So, um, yeah, there's definitely more maintenance to them. Um, but the advantage of a four-stroke, uh, number one in my book, is the sound. I mean, they sound yeah. they sound really, really good. I think they sound a lot like a real, you know, like a full-size engine. And another, yeah, just a little they, smaller, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, a lot mm-hmm. smaller in some cases. Um, but uh, the the other advantage is that they because they turn, you know, at a lower RPM, they're a little bit more efficient. Uh, so they're they're a little bit better with uh, fuel. Uh, so that you get a little bit more flight time out of the similar-sized uh, tank uh, compared to a similar-sized two-stroke. Um, but they turn a, you know, they can they develop a lot more torque, so you can turn a bigger propeller, um, and uh, you know that that's advantageous when you're flying things like you know um, airplanes that had big propellers like warbirds, for example. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's you know that's that's some of the advantages of the four-strokes, and I'm I'm a huge fan of them. I I have several. Uh, and I and I love them. <laughs> the four strokes then are, are still when the when the cylinders let's let's start at top dead center. Okay. So when that comes down, the first mm-hmm. stroke is going to be um, the the valve is going to open and the let the valve. there the intake valve is going to open and let the fuel air mixture in. Exactly. And then when that hits bottom, that first stroke that's going to close, and make sure I'm right on all these. Yep. So and then are good. It that next the step up. Valve. Right, so that next step up, everything is all sealed tight, and that yep. piston goes to top dead center, and when Squeezes it hits the, everything. okay, so that's the what was it? What was your thing again? I'm not so sure of that for a while. The suck, squeeze, bang, blow. Squeeze. So that's the squeeze portion. Exactly. And then when you hit the top, that's going to be your power stroke. So yep. that's going to be your bang. Exactly. And then as that's going down, that's where you're making all your power. Right. And then on that final stroke up, that is when the exhaust valve is going to open. And that's exactly. going to let all that gas out. Exactly. Yep. So that's exactly right. So you're only getting one power stroke out of out of uh, two RP or two revolutions, as opposed yep. to on every one that you do in a in a two stroke. Yep. Exactly right. So, okay. Well, I, I understand yep. that a little bit then. Yeah. So yeah, there's uh there's advantages and disadvantages to both. Uh, everybody, you know, everybody has their favorite. My favorite. Um, or four strokes. I, I just really like them. I'm, as you may have uh, been able to tell, I'm very hands-on. I like to tinker, and and four strokes suit me because they require tinkering. <laughs> yeah. Whereas I'm kind of the opposite. I, I like things just to work when I want it, and I don't want to have to mess with it too much when I'm not using right. it. Yeah. Um, and I can I can certainly see the appeal of that too. Yeah, and it it depends. I think on the airplane. You know, if you have one that you're just going to go out with every day to to fly for 15 or 20 minutes. Electric is so nice and easy, <laughs> but you're right. Going out to the field and, and actually flying, you know, like an airplane that or, sounds like an airplane. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it, there's a lot to be said for that sound. I, I really right. do like that a lot more. And the smell, too. I really like the smell yeah. of that fuel. And they look cool. I, I think the four strokes look cool, especially the early ones when they, uh, when the valves were, or the, I'm sorry, the rocker arms were exposed way back when. They just yeah. look look so cool when they're running, you know, seeing the, the rocker arms move up and down and you know what's happening inside. It's just, it's just very, I don't know, I don't want to say soothing, but I just like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and I like the looks like the, the Sato Golden Knight, too. The the right. black with the gold really looks good, too, on the, the valve covers. I, I like those uh, quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. It's a shame to stick those in a cowl sometimes, but yeah, got to do what you got to do. <laughs> That is true. But if you have, the, or if you don't have the room under the cowl, you cut nice little holes and you can still see that sticking out just a little bit. So yeah. that way you know it's under it. So yeah, we should probably talk a little bit, you know, so that's the difference, you know, between two stroke and four stroke. Um, probably should say a few things about uh, setup, right? Uh, yeah. So obviously these, these engines run, you know, off of a gas and that gas has to be contained in something. Uh, so we put it in a fuel tank. And uh, there's a few things you should know about fuel tanks. Uh, so generally speaking, they should be installed in your airplane such that the center line of the tank lines up as close as you can to the max extent possible, lines up with the center line of the carburetor. And the reason for that is uh, we don't we don't want to siphon fuel um, into the carburetor if the fuel tank happens to be sitting above it. And we also don't want to starve the engine of fuel because the engine has to work so hard to pull fuel out of a tank that's too low. So generally speaking, we try to install the tanks so that the center line lines up with the center line of the carburetor, or the venturi, I should say, of the carburetor. Um, and then there's different types of tank setups. You know, we've got uh, two-line tank setups and three-line setups. And, you know, some, I think there's probably, a, you know, a tank out there that you probably use one line. You know, it's a, we would call that a bladder. You know, it's, you know, as a fuel is drawn out of it, it shrinks the bladder kind of like a balloon. And then when you put fuel back in it, it blows back up. And, hmm, and I've not seen one of those before. I, it's been a long time. I, I don't, I don't think they're made anymore, but I, I have, you know, a long time ago, I, I've seen them. Um, I can see how that would be a pain. A pain, yes. But the advantage of that was you never had air in the tank. So no matter what position your airplane was in, it was always getting fuel which, you know, is going to get to what I'm talking about, a two-line and three-line setup. So most most standard two-stroke um, and four-stroke model engines will use a two-line setup. So basically you've got, you know, you've got your tank, and then coming out of your tank you have two lines, uh, two fuel lines. So one would be the pickup, and then you have a vent so that we're not, you know, compressing the tank as we're pulling fuel out of it because we're, you know, creating vacuum. So we'll have a vent. And more often than not, we'll have that vent line connected to our muffler. And the reason for that is uh, it will pull a little bit of positive pressure out of the exhaust. Not not so much pull, but a little bit of the positive pressure out of the exhaust will kind of make it to the tank to help pressurize the fuel to help with fuel draw. Um, so that's a two-line setup. Uh, a three-line setup is exactly the same, but it adds a third line that you can route somewhere convenient outside the airplane to use as a fill. So, for instance, on a Warbird, if we're using a fully cowled-in engine, it might be kind of hard to get to those lines to unplug them so that we could fill the tank, unless you're using a fuel dot, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, so in, in times like that where it's hard to get to those lines, uh, we'll run a third line out somewhere outside the cowl uh, with a cap on it, 
and we'll uncap it to fill the fuel tank and then we'll cap it back off when we're done filling. So with a with a setup like that then where you can't get to uh get to your uh your carburetor, your exhaust port uh or I'm sorry, or your muffler for for checking. How do you know when the tank is full? Cuz usually when you fill up a, a nitro engine, you you take both of those off and you fill um right. you fill until it starts to come out of one of the other the lines. Right. So how do you know when it's full? When we're filling a tank, you know, we have the vent line usually routed to the top of the tank where the, you know, the last remaining air would be as we're filling the tank, right? So mm-hmm. when the tank gets full, uh, fuel flows into the vent line. And then, like you said, you know, we'll have that unplugged off the muffler so we can watch it as we're filling it. On a fully cowled in engine, it's a little bit more difficult because obviously we, you know, if it's really fully cowled in, we can't reach that line to pull it off the muffler. So... And, and as crude as this sounds, uh, you, in, in, case, in installations like that, I'm usually looking uh, for fuel dripping out of the, out of the exhaust uh, pipe, be it a tune pipe or a muffler or what have you, or I'm listening for fuel to be squirting into the muffler. I know that's crude, um, and there's probably better ways to do it, uh, but, but not without going to a multiple, you know, three or four line even setup on the tank. Uh, most tanks are set up to do three line. Uh, you may have to make a small modification to the stopper. Uh, the stopper on the tank is usually molded with three holes, but one of them being closed off because most folks are going to opt for a two line setup and you don't need that third hole. Um, but I've never seen a four line setup. So on a fully Calden engine with a two line setup uh, and a fuel dot, which I was going to talk about, um, yeah, you're just pretty much listening or watching for raw fuel coming out of the exhaust as your indication. Or if you can see the tank, you know, you can see the tank and, you know, on my, uh, on my P40, uh, the tank happens to be right underneath the top hatch that I use to actually turn the airplane on so I can actually watch the tank as I'm filling it. And in that case, you know, a nice fully cowled in engine, I don't have to listen for uh, extra fuel running out of the exhaust or wasting fuel or anything like that. So a fuel dot, uh, <clears throat> you can use that with any any type of system. Um, uh, usually done with a, with a uh, well, okay, so there's, I shouldn't just say fuel dot. A fuel dot is a, basically a an extra line on a three-line setup that you run through a nice little fitting through the side of the fuselage or the bottom or whatever uh, with a cap on it. Same, same idea as a three-line setup that I mentioned earlier that you, know, you run an extra line out convenient that you use for filling. A filling valve is something entirely different. A filling valve, I think Dubrow still makes some. Sullivan used to make some, I believe. Uh, there were other Ernst. I don't know if they're in business anymore, but they used to make them. And what that is, it's a, it's a valve, actually, that plugs in line uh, with your fuel feed line to the carburetor. And you have this special little fitting. It's a it's a fitting that bolts onto the side of the airframe, and then you have this corresponding fitting that you use with your uh, with your fuel pump, uh, and it plugs into this valve. And when you plug it in, it closes off the feed to the carburetor and opens the feed back to the tank. So fuel flows in through the valve straight to the tank. It's closed off from the carburetor, so you don't flood the carburetor. And then the same rules apply. You just watch for raw fuel or watch the tank or whatever. And when it's full, you unplug that and the valve reopens and remakes the connection to the carburetor and off you go. So that's the difference between a fuel dot and a fuel filling valve. 
So uh, the way I kind of see that then is like a like an electrical switch, like a normally open or normally closed switch. Um, yep. So you have your power that's coming in one side, so that's going to be the part going to the carburetor. And then based on whether or not you have your um, your fuel plug in there, you're either going to have the connection going between the carburetor and the gas tank. Um, or the way I think about it, too, is, you know, that's like how your electricity would flow. So that's going to be your flow. Right. When you put the when you put your fuel valve in there, that stops all the flow going to the carburetor, and then that takes the flow to your valve, which is where you're going to be filling it up. So it's it can't go both ways. You know, it's a switch, so yes. it's either going to go one way or the other. So okay, yeah. I, I understand exactly that right. now. Yep. Okay. Yep. So there you go. I hope I haven't confused um, everybody on fuel tanks, but it's it's a lot simpler, I think, than I explained it. But basically, <laughs> on most sport airplanes, we're going to go with a two-line setup, and uh, we'll go with a three-line setup, usually for airplanes that are a little bit more scale, or if we're trying to maybe hide the fact that this is a model engine on a on an old warbird or whatever. Um, so then that's the fuel dot, what you were talking about with the right. with the, the fitting? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I get it. Yeah. Um so what, some of the other things then with tanks. So when you in, install them into the airplane, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you said in line with, uh, with the carburetor. Is there anything right. else you need to kind of worry about when you're putting them in there? Um, and like how big of a, a tank do you want to go with? So, yeah, on the size of the tank, um, I, I generally speaking, I try to fit as big a tank as I can in the available opening um, within reason. Uh, most, most fuel tanks are going to be mounted ahead of the CG, uh, usually. Uh, so you want to be mindful of, of that. You know, a full tank is going to maybe make it a little nose heavy as opposed to an empty tank. So within reason, I, I try to go as big as I can. Um, you want a little nose heavy um, as opposed yeah. to being tail heavy. But when right. you go to, like after you assemble an airplane, you go to do the, the center of gravity, you do the CG balance on it. Mm-hmm. Would you do that full or empty on a tank? Empty. That okay, so that makes sense then. When it's empty, yeah. you you check your center of gravity. That way, when you fill it, it's going to make it more nose heavy. Yeah, assuming right, assuming that the tank is ahead of the CG. Yes, which uh, most of them should be, right? Mo- yeah, I most, mean, like most of our sport planes. Now, some of these larger airplanes, like like my big yak, and I'm pretty sure like your really huge yak, uh, the fuel tanks are mounted pretty close to the CG. Um, because their tanks are so large, <laughs> it is. But it's it's a little four of the the CG, so okay. it's it's yeah. just a little bit forward part of that uh, or of the uh, the wing bar. Okay, yeah. So yeah, uh, weight and balance. Yeah, check them empty. You know, a tank empty when you're doing your your CG. Uh, but but anyway, yeah. So as big as possible within reason. Uh, a forty to sixty size. You know, a point four to a point six. You know, cubic inch engine sized airframe 12 ounces usually a 12 ounce tank is going to get you uh, depending on your your flying style uh it's 15 minutes easy uh, so um there's there's usually i'm i'm done after about 10 to 12 minutes to be honest either i get yeah your, your neck my, can start to get your neck, neck can start to hurt yeah. after a while right so within reason as big as you can um and as far as other yeah like so on the installation um I think you. This is the road you were kind of leading me down. You want to try to isolate that tank as much as you can from vibration, and we do that by either wrapping the tank in foam rubber, or I've seen some airplanes actually will, you know, have like a hole in the the shelf that it's sitting on, and it'll suspend the tank via rubber bands or whatever, and that hole 
anything you can do to prevent vibration from getting to the tank, um, you should do because uh, the fuel that we use, um, if when it's uh, subjected to you know the the vibration, especially the two strokes, uh, can can do with like a unbalanced propeller or whatever, which we'll get to. Um, the the fuel will actually kind of foam up, and then foam you know doesn't burn quite as nice as our as our fuel does. So uh, it burns much better in a liquid state than a foam. So we want to yeah. try to avoid that. So we try to wrap them in foam or otherwise somehow try to isolate them from vibration. So if you if you do get like a foaming issue, then what uh, does that make it run a little bit more lean then because you're pulling air in or how does that? Yeah, well, so it usually shows up as a lean condition, but mostly it's just uh, it shows up as kind of an erratic, hard to tune. Like at idle, you know, it may run just fine, but then when you really start to ramp it up, it, it, it you know, maybe it's lean one second and then, okay, I've, I've, I've added some fuel and now it's really too rich. It's just very hard to tune because the fuel supply is inconsistent. Okay, I get that then. Yeah. You want to talk about glow plugs? Sure, yeah. Yeah, I can, so, I can talk about plugs. I, okay, so there's different plugs I've seen. There's some hot plugs and there's some cold plugs. Um, what's the difference between those? Oh, man, there's there's hot plugs, there's cold plugs, there's plugs in between. So basically when, when we're talking about the, the, the heat range of the plug, a hot plug is going to hold on to more heat uh, during operation than a cold plug. And it all has to do with the thickness of the uh, the element and the length of the element and all this other stuff. Uh, but basically, um, plugs you can you can, now. Of course, every engine is going to come with from the factory with a recommendation, right? And we should try to yeah. stick to those whenever possible. Um, so, like for instance, you know, most OS two strokes uh, they recommend an OS number eight, which I think is a medium. I think uh, plug heat range. Um, but you can kind of use plugs to fine-tune the ignition timing, if you will. Let's say with, with all things being equal and your, your engine is running great on a medium, like let's say an OS number 8 plug. If you go and you swap that plug to, say, a hot plug, it's going to create, it's going to set off, if you will, that mixture, that that fuel air charge in the top of the cylinder, a little bit earlier. I mean, we're talking like fractions of a fraction of a fraction of a millisecond. But I mean, it it can fine tune. So, if uh, say maybe you're gonna race, let's say you're gonna do some pylon racing, and you know you wanna you've got a tuned pipe and you got all this other stuff to, to really kind of extract the most power out of this two-stroke, you might be able to get a, a, even a little bit more power by increasing or advancing the timing by adding a hotter plug than what you were using to set off that mixture a little bit earlier. Does that make sense? So then what would the, like the negative side effects be of, of running one that's hotter? The biggest disadvantage, and this this applies to really all internal combustion engines, um, you know, an ignition that is too far advanced or an explosion that is happening too early um, subjects the engine to tremendous uh, pressures in the on the connecting rod. That's the piece that connects the crankshaft to the piston. An explosion that's happening before top dead center 
or I should say too much before top dead center, you're now then trying to force that piston down because of the explosion uh, before it's past that top dead center and it creates a tremendous amount of stress. It's called detonation and uh, it can be it can be devastating to an engine. Uh, it creates, you know, and if, you know, even even mild forms of it, if left, uh, if left to go on, can really quickly wear out, uh, you know, an otherwise uh, good condition engine. So that's that's the big disadvantage. And sometimes, you know, the disadvantage is you just you just lose power because you have passed that point of peak efficiency. So you don't want to go with hotter all the time. Right. And always, I mean, always, 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 uh, especially with new engines, uh, follow the manufacturer's instructions. If OS says to use an OS number eight plug, then use an OS number eight plug. If, you know, if your brand new evolution says to use a, a McCoy, whatever, then use whatever they tell you to do. And you really shouldn't need really ever to tinker with plugs. Um, but if, you know, like me, if you're, if you're in and out of the market and you happen to pick up a used engine and there's, it's an older one, maybe you can't find any support online or any information on it. It's usually pretty safe to start with a medium plug and then, you know, maybe fine tune from there if you need to. Like a normal person then just flying every day will never have to worry about the temperature on their plugs. It shouldn't. No, no. I mean, so there, there's, is there any difference between what or what plug you use based on uh, like temperature outside, or does that have nothing to do with that? You know that that really, um, it really doesn't. I'm, I'm not a, by any means an expert. Like you know, I'm not. Uh, I'll throw out a name, Clarence Lee. You know, he's a like a legend in model engine uh, performance and and tuning and all that. <laughs> I am nowhere Never near heard of him. you know that that sort of level. But I can say that. Um, Generally speaking, most Sunday flyers like myself, once you use, you know, once you find a plug that works, you'll you'll really never really need to to try anything else. There's really just no need. Now, after years and years and years of experience, um, you, you'll develop uh, kind of a sense, if you will, um, and you can, you know, just like a like a you know a race car engine tuner, you can actually read, uh, you know, a a model engine plug. Takes lots and lots and lots of experience to be able to to do that, but uh, the really good ones can do that. So, how do you? I mean, like, how do you read? What are you looking for? Well, I mean, basically, you're looking for the you know for the the condition of the element. You know, when you when you pull a glow plug out of the out of an engine, you know, and you look down in it, and you can see this little wire that's coiled, you know, inside there, and that's called the element. And you know, just like just like full size cars, you know, if it's if it's uh, if it's dark and kind of sooty, well, you know the you know you're probably running a little rich, which is okay. Uh, you know, a rich engine is going to last a lot longer than a lean engine, right? Uh, yeah, especially and, with these two strokes and four stroke nitro engines that rely on that for cooling. Exactly. Yep. Uh, so you know you you can you can you can determine you know quite a bit about the health of the engine, but you know it also goes you know without saying that. You have to sort of start with a, a good plug to begin with. If you you know if you trying to read a plug that's been in your engine for three or four seasons, and you're probably not going to be able to learn much from it. So you have to start with a new plug, just you know just like you would with a you know with a with an engine mechanic in our cars. They'll put a fresh set of plugs in there and they'll go run it and then they'll pull them and look at them and read them. And we can sort of do the same thing. Like I said, a, you know a, a dark sooty 
coil indicates you know maybe some rich running you know one that looks you know kind of white and ashy uh, that one might be a little on the lean side so over years you can develop kind of an eye for that about how long should you get out of a glow plug you know that's a really good question um, I, I think it just depends it depends on how uh, how hard you are on the engine like do you fly at wide open throttle all the time or are you like me? Are you kind of lazy with the throttle? You just like to putt around. I think I think a lot of things go into how long these plugs will last. Uh, generally speaking, they'll last a lot longer in a rich condition than they will in a lean condition. I think that's um, you know kind of the the case for all glow and spark plugs. Uh, but but I mean I've got I mean I've got I'm looking at my contender here. Um, that Super Tiger's had that plug in it since I can remember. And I've had that airplane, well, I've had that engine on that airplane for at least, gosh, six, eight years. So I think it just depends. Um, so if it's taken care of and it's a, a well-tuned engine, it's not something you have to worry about replacing like every season or twice a season or anything along those lines. No, no, especially if you store your engines correctly, which we'll get to in a little bit. So another thing on on glow plugs. Mm-hmm. Um so okay, so I've seen some, and I think it goes back to my my Traxxas days, uh, if I remember right. There are some that have a bar over, uh, almost like it's shielding the plug itself. What yeah. what was that for? Yeah, so that's called an idle bar. Uh, the purpose of it is to basically shield that little coil element from the raw incoming fuel, which would otherwise extinguish it. So, kind of like uh, you know, if you got a an old coil burner electric range, right? And you got that big coil up there and you got a red hot, throw water on it and what happens? It, it gets dim where the water hits it, right? Well, a glow plug that's dim is not going to do us very much good, you know, lighting off that mixture. So an idle bar uh, will help to protect that, um, that coil from that cold incoming fuel. And generally speaking, and I hate to generalize, but most engines don't need those. In fact, I don't think I have any engines in here with a with an idle bar plug in it. But sometimes, you know, an engine that's finicky, maybe it doesn't like to idle, but it runs perfect in every other um, aspect. You know, it, runs, it transitions good, it runs good at part throttle, runs good at wide open. It just doesn't idle well. I can't get the idle down and it always wants to die at idle. Uh, sometimes a, an, an idle bar plug will, will help that. You have to be careful, though, because an idle bar plug effectively makes that a longer plug. So you have to make sure that you have proper piston to combustion chamber clearance. You don't want to be smacking that bar with the top of your piston. That would not end oh, well. Oh, yeah, that would that would break it pretty quick, wouldn't it? Usually what happens is it breaks off the bar and then the bar is in there floating around the, you know, the inside of the engine doing all kinds of damage. That won't last long. No. No, it does wonders for your sleeve. So so do yeah. the, the idle bars do the or do the idle bars do anything like uh, if your engine is inverted, is that something that would be helpful? Or because I, I guess with gravity, you're going to have the fuel flowing down. Yeah, it, it could, it could help, but but generally, like I said, an engine that is is uh, that is in good tune and is in good condition, generally speaking, will not need an idle bar plug. Uh, an okay. inverted engine included, like I have an inverted engine on my, um, well, it's sideways mounted, but kind of the same idea on my p40 and i i don't ever that thing idles great so yes and no uh, 
but try to get <laughs> try to get your engine running properly with the plug that the manufacturer recommends. And how do you know when it's time to change a glow plug? So yeah, the telltale sign is a hard start. You've developed your starting procedure and you know it works like a charm every time it starts on the first flip or it starts within the first couple seconds of being on the electric starter or whatever. And when you notice a change, it's hard to start or it won't start. First thing to look at is the glow plug. And there's, you know, you, there's ways you can tell a plug is bad too. Uh, you can test them. So what's a what's an easy way to test a plug then? So basically, what I do is I I pull it out of the engine and then I hook it up to my glow igniter. Uh, well, you know, just stick it on there, and if it glows, uh, it needs to glow all the way down. Uh, that little coil needs to glow all the way from the top to the bottom. And if it doesn't, you know, it has a couple of coils maybe at the at the base that aren't lit like the rest of them. It's probably time for a new plug. Even if you have one that's lasted for six or seven years, do you carry extras with you or do you have... I do. I mean, do you have a supply of them? I do. I keep okay. uh, I keep quite a few in my field box. Uh, I always seem to be either loaning one out or, you know, I've, I don't know, ran an engine too lean or, or what have you. I, I do try to keep some because I hate to get to the field and then not be able to fly simply because I don't have a, a fresh plug. That's frustrating. It always seems like you forget something or do something... And have to come all the way back home to get something, and it's it's yeah, it gets frustrating. Yes. So I I, I understand that. Oh, one one other thing I I forgot to mention uh, about reading the plug, um, you can also read a plug to see if your engine is uh, is detonating. You know, it's, it's in that condition where we're trying to light the fuel too early, and and usually the signs of detonation will first appear on the plug, especially if it's mild detonation. And what you'll look, what you'll see is you'll see the coil won't have a nice uniform coiled shape. It'll be misshapen somehow or maybe pushed off to the side a little bit. Not enough to short it out, but enough to to not look nice and uniform. I forgot to mention that. but I actually know what you're talking about. I've seen those before. <laughs> yeah. I so now to. I know what causes it. That's, that's yep. good to know. Yep. I'm guilty. I've, I've, uh, I've pushed them a little too far on, on more than one occasion. <laughs> so when you're, okay, so when you're flying, um, obviously, I think we'll probably talk later about how to start these things. Mm-hmm. But when you're flying, you know, you're not running any power to this glow plug. So right. does it, it still does something, you know, it won't run without a glow plug, correct? You mean the engine won't run without right. a glow plug? Yeah, yeah, so the engine won't run without a glow plug. Right. What, so what, what does that do? Like, how does that work when it's in the engine? So there's a, there's a, a chemical reaction that's going on. Um, well, actually, it's a chemical reaction that is sort of um, propagated by heat and pressure. So that element... I think it's I think it's made of rhodium, I think, or or some other form of that type of metal. Um, and so when we when we first start our engine, uh, we have to we have to get the process going. So we we clip on you know a volt and a half, you know one point two volts, whatever whatever you're using, and it lights that coil. It it basically creates a short like in the plug, and current rose flows through that coil, kind of like a light bulb, if you will, not a short. I guess I shouldn't say a short, but um, anyway, we start the process off with the battery. And then once the engine is running, the heat and uh, pressure of compression uh, happening every stroke or every other stroke on a, on a four-stroke, in addition to the methanol that is in the fuel, uh, creates a chemical reaction to keep that uh, element glowing so that the process of ignition can happen every, you know, every time it needs to happen. So that's what's going on. And that's why we can pull the, 
uh, the you know the one and a half volts off the plug after it started because that process is going and that <clears throat> the chemical reaction and the heat and pressure of combustion is is keeping that whole process alive. So then that kind of works like my uh, I, I built a hot wire cutter for some foam, um, and I think that's nichrome wire ni- or nickel chromium or something like that wire. Okay. Um, and that kind of does the same thing then, I guess, as what you're talking about when you heat that up because you apply voltage to it. And right. depending on how long that piece of wire is that I'm using, it, it you know, right. it's a different voltage. Yeah, the big difference between your, your foam cutting wire and a two-stroke or a four-stroke model engine is when you pull the power off of your wire, it, it goes dim and gets cool. Uh, whereas we pull the power off of ours, when the engine is running, it continues to glow. Right, yeah, but that's only because it's under such immense pressure and has the, the fuel to kind of keep it going too then. Right. Yep. But okay. Well, then I understand kind of how that works. And then, you know, to, when you're testing glow plugs, you know, you want to be careful because they do get hot. So if you're holding it in your hand like I do, uh, don't <laughs> check it quickly and then pull it off the heat because it will get hot and it'll burn your fingers. Yeah. Ask me how <laughs> I know that. <laughs> yeah. How do you know that? <laughs> I've been there, done that. Like it's it's funny. I've been such a you know I've been a hobbyist for so long. Like the tips of almost all of my fingers have no feeling in them because they've been either burnt or cut or <laughs> sanded <laughs> or whatever. So anyway, but you're not you're not doing a lot to tell people this is a good hobby to be in. <laughs> <laughs> but I I mean it's there's something to it, right? Because I keep coming back. Well, apparently, I guess <laughs> a glutton for punishment or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, so would you uh, you want to talk about how to start one? Yeah. How do you how do you start one? Well, what's your procedure? Do you want to talk about your procedure? Well, I can kind of go over what I do. I don't I don't have a lot of experience with nitros. I've only been flying you know for for a few years compared to you. Yeah. Um, well, you don't you don't I, have any trouble getting your airplanes going. No. Um. But I don't know as much about everything that's going on with them, if that makes sense. I feel like I'm dominating the conversation. I'm trying to give you a chance here. Oh, no, that's okay. I mean, I, I don't mind. <laughs> okay. Um, but I, I understand how, like, the basics of them, but when it gets more in-depth, I've never really gone into it and learned about them. Okay. Um, they're they're actually pretty cool little engines. I mean, there's there's a lot that goes into them, and they, uh, they're they kind of amazing little pieces of technology when, when you kind of look into them a, a little bit more. Yeah. Um, and what's really amazing is how old this technology really is. I mean, these model oh, is engines, it? I mean, two-stroke model airplane engines go back to the 40s, 30s even, I think. It's it's really quite quite remarkable. Huh. Sorry. That is, no, that's okay. That is a long time ago, though. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I had one of the, the Cox uh, <laughs> yep. 049 little control line things. Yep. Um, I never got it started though, because I never had anybody mentor me like like you had your neighbor do. Right. Um, That's I unfortunate. Just, my, I I know my parents bought it for me, and I just I I'm thinking, and this is way off topic. I'm sorry, but on those, do you remember? Was there any kind of like a, a spring starter or something on it to where you would like wind it a little bit and then let go, or was it yep. just a? No, okay. They had, yep. Some of them had spring starters. Okay, because the one I had did, um, yep. and I remember cutting my hands like several times <laughs> yep. uh, before I started using a, a stick to do it. So, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And like I said, unfortunately, I didn't have uh, uh, like my dad and stuff wasn't very um, uh, mechanical. Okay, he was he was very uh, 
mental. Not a oh, whole. That didn't sound right. Um, he was he was Your academic. Now. <laughs> he was academic. You know, he wasn't yes. hands on with a bunch of things like I no, am. I, I know um, what you mean. Okay. Well, I want to make sure everybody knows what I mean when I said that because that that sounded no, a little Ron's bit wrong. Ron's dad is not mental. He's just very academic. Academic. That's smart. a better word for yeah. it. Um, but anyway, so you know, when I, when I was young, he wasn't into that. He didn't know how any of that stuff worked. So that's I kind of got uh, I got that I think as a birthday present or something. And yeah, like I said, never got it to run. And, and after listening to all this, I, I realized I never had a glow plug igniter. Um, so I never had a chance to begin with. So yep. that's kind of funny. That is um, kind of funny. So you were trying to anyway, start it, trying to start it, trying to start it, and never had any heat to the plug. Never ever. had. Nope. Never had any. <laughs> never poor, had any. Poor hope. kid. I know, kid. right? It's yeah. amazing. I stayed with airplanes after it I, I really kind of got back into them later. Especially knowing so. how you are, you like you just like stuff to work. That's funny. I I do. I I get upset when things don't work the way they're supposed to. Yeah. But well, I could see that. Um, see, I mean, that would turn a lot of people off. You know. That, that sort of first experience. Yeah, but see, I think after that, I ended up with, uh, do you remember the the little battery operator? It looked like a flashlight. I think it took like three or four D-cell batteries. Okay. Um, yeah. And it, you know what I'm talking about yet? It had I, I a little button know, on it. Yeah, and it had a wire and it just flew around in circles above your head. Right. So the, yeah, the yeah. motor was actually inside this little thing that looked like a battery. You press yeah. the button and then there was a wire that went up to this airplane. And it was just a little plastic uh, plastic and cardboard airplane that had a propeller on the front of it. Yeah. And when you press it, that motor spun all the way through that wire and went up to the propeller. Oh yeah. my gosh. I got I spent hours just like going in circles with that thing. <laughs> I was yeah. getting really good at like taking off, landing and all that stuff with it. That I really, really enjoyed. And I, I remember yeah. that was I think that was probably right before the bigger control line airplane. I think that's why they got that one for me, the Cox one. Oh, I got you. Um, okay. Because they saw that, you know, I was huh. into that one. And I, I don't think they knew what they bought when they bought it. They just saw, I'm seeing, you know, bigger I, I'm airplane. I'm seeing a trend. I'm seeing a trend here. So your Uh-oh. very, very first airplane was electric. And your second <laughs> airplane that you had terrible luck with was a nitro. So that's why you have an affinity for electric airplanes. It, it could be. It comes full circle. I never, <laughs> ever thought of that. But yeah, that's amazing. And my first actual radio-controlled airplane was an electric one, too. There you go. See? Oh, that's funny. Making connections. <laughs> oh, we got off on a tangent on that one. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, yeah, I'm sure somebody will find that amusing. I found it amusing, so there. So back to starting. Um, okay. When I start... Uh, it's, it's very simple. You know, we talked about filling the tank already, so I make sure the tank is full. Right. Um, really all I do is I, well, first off, you got to make sure that your glow plug igniter is charged. Um, the ones I have are, they run off of, uh, rechargeable batteries. So you just plug them into your, into your, uh, into your charger and make sure they're charged the night before. Yep. You can get them, um, with just regular, like C or D cell batteries, uh, I actually, I think those work pretty well too, because you don't yeah. have to worry about keeping something charged. Yeah. I actually prefer those. Yeah. I ought to look into getting a couple of them just to have on hand. Um, and can I, can but, I just tell you the reason I prefer those? Sure. Uh, because of the voltage, um, you know, a, a regular yeah. alkaline battery, you know, puts out one, one and a half, half volts. volts. Yeah. And, you know, rechargeable puts out what 1.2, something like that. Yep, that's that's so, uh, kind of what we talked about last time, and, th- and that's the other thing too. You know, the NIMH batteries have a lot of drain in that first twenty-four hours, so exactly, 
it, it's yeah. it's good to have something you don't have to worry about charging. So, yeah, yeah I probably yeah. ought to look into getting a couple of those. Well, um, and the extra voltage is good for lighting the plug, too. Yeah. I mean, the plugs are rated for 1.5 volts, so why not, you know, why not use 1.5 volts? That's the way I look at it. No, you're right. Um, <laughs> anyway, sorry. I'm not going to argue. No argument here. Um, <laughs> so let's see. Sweet. The next thing I do after I have uh, the glow plug on, uh, I get out my electric starter and put it on the front and spin it until it starts. Okay. And then I let it run a couple seconds, take the glow plug off and put it on the ground and, you know, hold it down, run it up to full throttle and then do my pre-flight and go. That's, yeah. I know you do a little bit differently. So Well, that's that's what, almost exactly how I would have uh, would have described it. There's just a couple of things I would have I, I'll do first. Um <laughs> So fill the tank, just like you said, you know, cap off the vent line or put it back on the muscle or whatever. And then I try to make sure I get a good prime. So I don't want any air bubbles in the fuel system if I can avoid it. So I'll prime the engine, um, which serves two functions, actually. It gets, it gets fuel into the engine, you know, so that it'll run. And then it also pulls air bubbles out of the line. Uh, so I do that before I even think about lighting the plug. Uh, and then once I have it primed, and I prime it to the point where it sounds, um, it's hard to describe it, sounds wet or squishy, if you will. Uh, and, and my method for priming is a couple, you can do it a couple different, or I can do it a couple different ways. Depends on the installation. Um, that my preferred method is to, without any glow heat on, I'll run the throttle all the way up so that the throttle barrel is all the way open. And then I'll plug with my finger the exhaust. So just put my finger over the exhaust outlet and then I'll flip it over a few times. And usually within a, within, you know, three or four flips, I've got fuel drawn up to the engine from the tank and fuel actually sitting, you know, either in the intake or in the in the cavity of the crankshaft or whatever. I have some fuel in the engine um, within a few flips. Uh, and then I'll take my finger off the muffler and I'll flip it a few more times vigorously with the throttle open. Uh, and then I'll close the throttle to idle, and then I'll do, you know, then I'll carry on from where you, you said you started. You do all your starting by hand, though. I do. Uh, I, I, I can't say all. I mean, I do have a couple of engines that are, you know, kind of stubborn and, and probably you know, due for a, a rebuild because of the low compression. So they're a little bit harder to start, and I will use on occasion uh, an electric starter. But I do I do prefer to hand start. Uh, all my engines to include my four strokes. So what's the, is that just a personal preference or is there anything that's actually like better for the engine to do it that way? You know, ask four different people that and you'll get four different <laughs> opinions. Uh, my opinion is um, I think hand starting is, is probably easier on the engine. Uh, I think you run less risk of damaging the engine. If you should happen to say have a flooded engine and you're putting that electric starter on there and the, you know, the combustion chamber is full of gas that, by the way, it's hard to compress liquid, right? Right. So, um, you know, with that electric starter, you could bend a, bend a connecting rod or you could do all kinds of damage if if you're not careful. You know, I just don't want to take that risk, right? So, yeah. And so then, um, like, an inverted engine, is that more difficult to start? Um, it can. You know, does be. that have a higher higher chance of flooding? It, it can, especially four strokes. Um, because of, of the intake and the way they're set up and, and the long exhaust track, 
uh, if it's inverted, of course, everything is going to run to the to the cylinder. Uh, so when right. that, you know, if you have a large amount or a large volume of liquid in the intake, and that intake valve opens, it's going to go you know straight into the combustion chamber. So yes, potentially you you have a little bit more risk of flooding you know, an inverted engine. But if you're, you know, if your fuel tank and everything is set up correctly and you've, and you've primed it, you know, and not over primed it, then usually you can mitigate that risk. But um, yeah, you you can, it's, it's possible to run into starting issues with inverted engines. Uh, but if you're using your hand, you'll know those problems before they, before you, you know, before you potentially bend a connecting rod by trying to crank it over with an electric starter. So you'll just, you'll feel more resistance then, or you won't be able to get oh, it past that compression because of the, because of the, uh, extra fuel in there then if it's flooded. Yeah. If it's, if it's flooded, you, you, gen, it, you, it'll be very difficult to, with your hand, rotate it through the, the compression and over top dead center because you just can't compress a liquid. You'll know by hand. And so then if you're using the electric starter though, there's nothing to let you know that it's it's getting to the point where you need to be careful, and that's right. when you can actually do damage. Then okay, right? Like how many yeah. times have you have you been to the field and you've seen somebody using an electric starter, and you know they put the starter up there and it it fails to turn the engine over. So what do they do? They they pull the starter off. Try they, harder. Exactly. They'll they'll yeah. move the you know pull the propeller back away from the compression stroke, and then they'll get like a running start at it. Right? They'll fire up their <laughs> starter and then jam it onto the spinner. I mean, yeah. you've seen it. Right? Oh, I have, yeah. I definitely so, have, yep. Yeah, don't be that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a reason it's not starting then. Yeah, I'm just teasing. I mean, you know, people do what they have to do. I, I shouldn't judge. <laughs> well, no, it's not judging. It's, you know, you want them to uh, to not damage their equipment. Right. And if they don't know what's going on, like I never would have thought anything about doing that. Um, it, it just seems like it, it makes sense if it... If it's because your your starter doesn't have enough power to turn it over, well, then that's how you right. would do it, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah, if you don't realize there's an underlying issue that you need to deal with, right. as of you know why it's not starting or or why it's having problems, then you don't know. If you don't know, you don't know. I mean, I don't know how else to put it other than that. So, right. yep, it's good to good to know what's uh, what's going on, so you can do things appropriately and not damage your your materials. Right, and I mean, you know, back when the hobby started, we didn't we. I, I shouldn't say we. I wasn't. I've been in a long time, but it wasn't. It hasn't been that not that long. long. Um, but there were no such thing as electric starters, so you know you had to develop a technique to start them by hand. Otherwise, you weren't flying. <laughs> yeah. So so I I prefer to do it by hand, and I've got a little technique that works for me. Um, you know, and and I I have pretty good pretty good luck. I think. Really quick though, the other thing too though is you can not really damage your your hub. But you can really mar up, um, uh, like your spinner on your propeller, yes. too. You know, if, if you're using a, a starter like that. So that's another good thing is you know it kind of keeps your plane looking prettier longer, right? Um, right. Without having all the the marks from that the starter on it. So yeah. Uh, but yeah, if you want to get into your into your starting thing, that's fine. Yeah. So I've you know I prime the engine like I you know like I described there, and then uh, once I have it primed, I'll close the throttle to idle, and I'll give it a a couple of more good flips through the compression to sort of distribute that fuel throughout the engine, and then uh, and then yeah, I'll uh, I'll put the I'll put the glow heat on, and then what I like to do is I like to back the engine up against compression, and then I just basically uh, on on most not all but on most of my engines I'll grab the spinner and I won't even touch the propeller I'll just give the 
the spinner a, a quick right hand flip up against compression, and usually that's you know that's enough to get it going. If that makes sense. So you run it backwards, or you try and start it backwards? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not trying to start it backwards, but that's the motion, right? So like as you're looking, you know, as you're facing your engine, as you're looking at it, it you know, when it's running, it's it's going counterclockwise, right? Correct. So when I'm starting my engine, uh, actually before I put the glow heat on, after I've done my couple of vigorous flips, I'll uh, I'll turn, you know, the propeller uh, clockwise until I reach compression, right? I won't force mm-hmm. it. I'll just kind of turn it until I until I bump it up against compression, and then I'll put the glow heat on, and then I'll just give it a little flick, if you will, uh, up against that compression. And usually that's you know eighty percent of the time, maybe uh, that'll work on the first try if I've primed it correctly. A point of safety: you should never fire up your airplane without assistance, like somebody holding the airplane, because mm-hmm. if this thing fires off and you've got nobody to hold it, I mean there you are exposed. And here's this thing coming at you or moving away from you. Bad news. So always, always have a helper there to hold the airplane when you can. I'll just say it that way. Can those run backwards? Yeah, they they do fire up and run backwards sometimes. Um, and usually a quick little blip of the throttle. And that's usually enough to either kill it or get it running the right direction. And if if you have years and years and years of experience and you know what you're doing and you're comfortable around them, sometimes you can correct them physically. You know, an engine that, like a two-stroke that's running backwards at idle, um, I'll kind of form my hand into a, a fist with like a, a little hole, kind of like you're giving somebody the okay sign. And then I'll just kind of cup the spinner with that real quick. And usually that's enough to stop the engine and more often than not, it'll start running the correct direction. Oh, without having to restart it even? Right. Usually. Huh. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, like, you know, I don't recommend that anybody do that. <laughs> That's what I was just going to say. That that sounds dangerous. So if you don't know what you're doing or you're not if, sure, yeah. just don't do it. Right. Um, yeah. yeah if, if, if you don't even feel comfortable starting it right. by hand, right. you know, use a chicken stick or use yeah. the, the starter. That's fine. Yep. Yeah. There, there's nothing wrong with doing that. Yep. I usually always have a glove on. I have a thick leather, uh, it's not really a welder's glove, but it's a pretty thick leather glove. <laughs> I love I how use. you said that, by the way. I usually always have it on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, sometimes, you know, I'm, I forget. I'm, you know, I'm getting older. I tend to forget to bring <laughs> things with me to the field. Yeah, I sometimes always do that too. I'm looking at it. It's, it's a big leather glove, and I usually have that on when I'm firing up my engines. <laughs> Unless I've forgotten. (laughs) Remember, I mean, I'm old and I've been doing this, you know, a long time. I have lots of experience. I'm not an expert, okay, but I I kind of know what I'm doing. So I know the dangers and I know how to avoid them. Somebody who hasn't been doing it a long time may not be aware of the dangers. So you shouldn't try stuff like that unless you're absolutely comfortable doing so. Yeah, we're not condoning any of this. Right. So Just telling you you what works for me. (laughs) <laughs> do as he says, not as he does. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I'll give you uh, give you my mom's advice. Yeah. Do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. That's, I think I was raised on that same motto. I think a lot of us were. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that's how, I, that's how I start my engines. So what's the difference between starting an engine just normally versus like when it's cold outside? Is there anything you have to look out for? 
because you know we have winters. Yeah, we go out. Yeah. You know, we we usually try and fly on January first. Yep. Um, to which I usually bring an electric airplane because you know that's me. <laughs> um, but is there anything extra yep. that you have to do for for a nitro? Uh, generally speaking, they uh, in in colder weather, um, you know, the the air is usually denser, so they'll they'll require a little bit more fuel. Uh, so you may have to richen up the needle valve. Um, but but basically, the the biggest difference is you know they're a little bit, or they can be a lot uh, harder to start. So they'll require either more flipping, or in the winter time, that's usually when I. When I use an electric starter, that's when it is. It's just because I don't know the science behind it, but the you know the cold and the dense air, and they're they're just more difficult to start. But but once they're warmed up, they they run just like uh, as, as if it was you know ninety degrees outside. Well, that's and, interesting. You know to to get them yeah to get them started. You know uh, you know sometimes a little extra prime helps without without flooding it. Um, but a little extra yeah. fuel in there to get the process started sometimes helps too. So I wonder, do they run a little bit better then in the winter because of the denser air? They make more power, that's for sure. Make more power, yeah. Oh yeah. That's, that's kind of <laughs> common with all internal combustion engines. Right. Um, yep. You know that you get more power with that the air that's condensed. I guess it kind of works as a, a supercharger without actually putting one on. Yeah. Yeah. More or less. I mean, you've got a colder, denser uh, fuel uh, fuel charge, so yeah, it develops. You know, you can get more in and more out. So yeah, you. Uh, get a little bit more power. Um, huh. Yeah. But they are a little bit more difficult to get going in the colder weather. So you have to prepare for that frustration if you're going to fly in January. <laughs> yeah. Just be prepared. Um, so we are at about, uh, give or take, about an hour mark right now. Okay. Uh, we have a lot more to talk about. Um, True. We, you know, we still need to talk about tuning and all that stuff. I think I would like to end this one for now, um, okay. and do like a part two. Um, oh yeah, sounds good. That way, that way we're not, uh, you know, not doing a two and a half hour episode or something like that. So sure. Um, join us for part two, um, and for now I'm going to sign off. Then I am uh, I'm Ron, and I'm Tom. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the RC Plane Lab podcast. For topic suggestions, to ask questions, or to give any feedback, connect with us at rcplanelab.com or email us direct at either ron at rcplanelab.com or tom at rcplanelab.com. You can also text us or leave us a voicemail at 818-351-9846. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, may your landings be gentle.